You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in Utrecht. Hello, buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of tonight's episode and despite what you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am not in Utrecht. Um, as I wasn't in Utrecht yesterday, as I explained, and won too many foreign grand grand salidas for us this year, a few too many carbon emissions, so I'm only going to Spain on Monday. Joining me tonight from Traverse City in Mi- Michigan, not in Texas, we'll discuss <laughs> this, um, is current AG2R Citroën professional, veteran of four Vueltas a España, I think. Uh, yeah. A Tour de Suisse stage winner and 2017 US national road race champion, Michigan's finest, Lucky Larry Warbass. Lucky Larry, great to see you. Great to have hey, you. Hey, Daniel, good to be here. Yeah, I'm pumped. First cycling podcast, my uh, podcasting debut here. Well, much like EF Education um, first um, sort of um, firing a, a shot across the bowels of Ineos Grenadiers and um, Jumbo Visma when they announced, oh, sorry, by announcing the signing of Carapaz yesterday and Jumbo Visma when they announced um, Bambala yesterday. We, we're unveiling you as our new signing. Apologies to AG to our Citroën. You'll be with us from now from now on. But Larry, first of all, address this. Why are you here? Why are you not riding La Vuelta España? Well, first, I have to say, we, we did get approved for the mid-season transfer to the cycling podcast. Uh, you know, we, we definitely went through all the proper channels at AG2R to make sure that was okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm here... Uh, well, unfortunately, I'd rather be at the Vuelta on my bike in person, but uh, I guess this is a good second uh, option. So, yeah, three weeks ago uh, in Tour de Wallonie, I crashed and broke my pelvis on the last stage. So um, that was not ideal. Um, I was really getting ready for the Vuelta. I did a few weeks at altitude before, and I was, yeah, I was ready and raring to go. And then, uh, yeah, a little tire blowout on the cobbles on the last stage. Uh, laid me out and, uh, yeah, broke my pelvis. So, uh, I had to take about three weeks off the bike. I'm just getting started back now and, uh, hoping I'll be able to be on the bike, uh, by the end of the season. So, uh, you know, unfortunately I won't be joining you full time at the cycling podcast at the moment, but, uh, well, this, but yeah, this might be your least... first and last appearance, depending on how you get on, uh, on, the, on the stage start, summary time trial. Um, Larry, generally speaking, how are you with watching races? when you are not able to race is it a painful experience was today a painful experience uh no i mean well painful experience because it was a flat sprint stage and i had to watch the whole thing or uh painful experience because uh i'm not there no uh i mean the thing is is like i i do love cycling and i love watching cycling so even if i'm (laughs) even if i'm disappointed to not be there ah you know I guess you just have to deal with, uh, I guess the, you have to roll with the punches and, um, I still enjoy watching the races, uh, if I don't have a whole lot else to do anyway. So, um, there are guys, yeah. there are guys who hate it. I think yeah, I mean, there's some guys who po- like possibly not yeah. to the extent we was here, here with professional footballers that they really abhor 
um, often watching games when they're not playing. But um, there are some riders as well who don't enjoy it. I know that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think a lot of guys, they're like, oh, you know, I try to avoid cycling as much as possible uh, while I'm not on the bike or if I don't have to. But, you know, I mean, like, I'm not just a rider in the sport. I'm a huge fan of the sport. So I, I actually really enjoy watching the races. Uh, I, I find it really interesting. And uh, I definitely w- w- rather watch a, a cycling race than a football match, <laughs> which might not be the same for uh, you. But. Let, let's, um, no, we're, we're recording at a very inopportune <laughs> yeah. moment at the moment. So uh, yeah. that's a sore subject. Let's not talk about that. Um, how's, tra- <laughs> how's Traverse City, which is not in Texas? Yeah, because, you, because you're um, not, you're not as I established. As I've established after about five or six years, you're not Lawson Craddock. He's from Texas. Exactly. Just exactly. Get you mixed up. Yeah. No. No. We both have names that start with L A W, but uh, yeah. After that, we don't have a whole lot of similarities. But um, yeah, actually, it's really good. I got here the night before last, and uh, it's a beautiful place in the summer. It's a little bit too cold for me in the winter, but uh, yeah, awesome riding and cool place to be. Lots of stuff to do in the summer, so happy to be here. Now, Larry, yesterday I introduced a few new features to the Cycling Podcast, the first of which was a kind of replacement for the much-loved and much-lamented now tale of the etapa. Um, The substitute also serves to tell us exactly what happened on today's stage, so take it away, Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. Now, Larry, you're on the start ramp. You're wearing your quick step style, super snood. Um, you're ready to roll down the ramp. How confident are you? I don't think you're very confident, are you, about this? 90 seconds to sum up everything that happened today. Should we take it away? We should take it away. I wasn't confident before, but after I took a few notes and kind of like got the gist of what I have to do, Larry, I think I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, Larry, cut the niceties, off you go. Okay, so today was a 175-kilometer stage, the second stage of the Vuelta. Um, actually, I forgot to write down where the start and finish was. But they were both in Holland, so I can assure you of that. Actually, um, Holland or the Netherlands, carry on, carry on, we'll address this later. Oh, okay, okay. Anyway, breakaway, five guys, they went straight off the line pretty much. It was Julius Vandenberg, Thibaut Gernalek, Jetsibol, Miguel Pau, and Xavier Mikel Asparin. Um, so yeah, uh, wasn't like a super huge breakaway, but that's still some strong guys. So they actually kept them on a really tight leash, never really got a huge amount of time and they got pulled back pretty quick. So breakaway only lasted 114k. We saw a quick attack from Luis and Helmate, uh, but he even got caught with 20k to go. So yeah, I guess the sprinters teams were super motivated today. And, uh, as we could expect, we saw a bunch sprint. Won by Sam Bennett, uh, second place Mads Peterson, Tim Merlier third, and then fourth was Mike Denusen, which is important to know just because he ended up taking the red jersey. So, um, yeah, I guess if I'm going to summarize all the other things, uh, the stage winner, Sam Bennett, he also has the points jersey. Julius Vandenberg won the KOM sprint, so he has a KOM jersey. Ethan Hader in the white Young Riders jersey. And Yitzipol was most aggressive rider. Um, I don't know how many seconds I've gone. Uh, do, you know, but... do, do you know what, Larry? I forgot to start the watch as well. So um, I think it was pretty good. I think it was pretty good. Um, 
not knowing where we started and finished was a, a low point, literally and figuratively. <laughs> we are in the Netherlands, um, one of yeah. the low countries. Um, actually, we did sneak into, do you know, you know this distinction between Holland and the Netherlands? Actually, um, I didn't know that was. I thought that was like I always use them interchangeably. So yeah, I guess I'm going to learn a fact here. Only two, I think they refer to them as provinces in the Netherlands are actually um, well. There's North Holland and South Holland, and I think we went briefly into uh, North Holland today. We were sort of in Utrecht is kind of in the um, the Dutch Massive Central, um, kind of in more uh, or yeah. less in the middle of the country, depending on you know, whether you count part of the sea. Um, and we were sort of, it is a kind of mountain range, that part of Holland by <laughs> Dutch standards. I think, well, today the climb, meters or what? Well, the climb topped out at, I think, 78 meters. Oh, oh wow. no, sorry, 70 meters above sea level or 68, something like that. Um, you mentioned that Julius Vandenberg took the points very appropriately because Vandenberg means from the hill. I'm yeah. pretty sure, pretty sure. Um, and... Yeah, the highest point. What, what would you say the highest point? Guess the highest point in um, the altitude of the highest point in the Netherlands. What would you say it is? 275 meters. 323 meters. You know what? I was going to say 300 something, but then I was like, maybe that's too high. I mean, it's surely one of the places we go in the Amstel Gold Race, uh, but yes, I forget what it's called. It is down there. It time. is down there. Um, I was because I was astonished when we went to Denmark, Tour de France. I knew Denmark was a pretty flat place. I didn't realize how flat the highest point in Denmark is 171 meters above sea level. Oh, wow. I still won the Tour de France. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> extraordinary. Um, just a couple of points. Um, you mentioned Paul Mikel in the break today. It was his 22nd birthday today, the Kern farmer rider. So happy birthday to him. Um, you mentioned Luis Angel Mate as well. Friend of the podcast. We'll be catching up with him on numerous occasions, I'm sure, when I go to Spain. Now, he has, well, he's unveiled this initiative um that he will oh, be yeah yeah um uh, a, a, a sort of good cause that he'll be well, not raising money for but literally planting trees for on the Vuelta España now Luis Angel Mate the links of Marbella of course um he's affectionately known as and in the area down there in Andalusia where he's from the area he calls his office and um, there've been terrible forest fires the last couple of years one there was one in particular in June last year oh sorry September last year and June this year um, around 2,000 people lost their homes. And at La Vuelta, every time that he gets in a break, or well, he's going to plant a tree um, for every kilometre he's going to do in the break. He's already pledged 100 prior to that, 100 trees. I think La Vuelta España is going to double that, so they're going to plant 200. I think they might also be doubling um, the, the, the ones that he plants for every kilometre he's in the breakaway. And also his team are doing doing the same so today 20 something kilometers we think in the break um yeah 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 he was uh yeah i think he was 20 20 yeah i didn't look exactly but (laughs) (laughs) so that was a nice a nice little subplot anyway and another thing i'll be doing larry i forgot to do this yesterday but to sort of feed into the final wine glass rating out of five at the end of la vuelta i'll get the guests to rank each stage individually for entertainment value. Uh, what did you okay. think of today? Out of 10? Out of five. Out of five. Out of five. Okay. Uh, I don't want to I mean, be it too... Wasn't, it wasn't, it I wasn't was a say, blockbuster, was it? 
1.5 maybe <laughs> okay okay sorry a very watery Beaujolais um yeah. Larry Sam Bennett won the stage I think you were happy to see him get back to winning ways having missed out on the Tour de France Mike Turnison, we didn't really see this coming. He took the red jersey from his teammate, Robert Hasing, another Dutchman in the red jersey. Should we hear from both of them? Let's hear from Sam Bennett first Perfect. and then Mike Turnison. Were you confident that you were going to uh, pass Max Pedersen? Um, at the beginning, I thought maybe I, because I, Danny probably up with speed. And then... Uh, he kind of was ready for me to jump, but I, I waited just for a second and I didn't notice I leave my speed drop a little bit too much because Danny was coming with so much speed that um, I should have kind of went straight away. So a bit nervous that I wouldn't get on top of the speed again. But in the end, like, we came from behind, Danny delivered. Danny, he didn't deliver me, he launched me. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, like, his down to the boys today you know they did a fantastic job to bring me to the intermediate we uh, tried to just collect points we didn't try to go for the actual first place in that um, kind of keep the legs for the actual final and then um, yeah you know they, they brought me to the line with great legs and uh, yeah don't know like, you know like in the moment you're just you're just racing i wasn't i was more worried about holding on than it was actually uh, than being worried about passing people <laughs> two years after your last win in the grand tour at La Vuelta, after everything you went through how big is that yeah it's nice like i i knew i'd do it again it's just a matter of getting the right legs um uh, what i'm really happy about is a uh, continuing my pattern of each grand tour since 2018 i think i've won at least say one 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 at least one stage in each so i'm happy i continue that after leading the tour de france here you are leading la vuelta was that a plan yeah uh, no actually not um, I mean, I've been saying already for uh, for a lot of days that uh, we are mainly here to protect Primos. Also today, that was the big plan. Uh, but actually, this morning, um, the guy surprised me a bit, uh, saying that uh, if it's all going to plan, if Primos goes safe into the last week, then uh, yeah, we could see uh, if I could be the one uh, across the line first. So uh, that was already pretty special, and uh, I already want to thank uh, the team and everyone involved because. Like you said, the yellow jersey is really special, and now actually the red one after that is uh, is maybe even more special. Uh, I hear from Robert, it was an amazing day, and I'm already really looking forward to tomorrow. Uh, I mean, in uh, in home country, already a lot of people cheering. Probably tomorrow will be the same. It's uh, it's really amazing uh, for me and uh, for everyone. The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. 
thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. Super Sapiens is a system of continuous glucose monitoring which can give you real-time insights into your glucose levels and help you to fuel more effectively for your events and for your training. And if you want to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. You can also listen to the Super Sapiens podcast, which has been launched fairly recently. It's hosted by Xylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann. And here is a little clip. With me is my co-host, Dr. David Lippmann. David is the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens. He's, as mentioned, a doctor, an exercise physiologist, and an ultra-marathon runner himself. David's career has been spent coaching endurance athletes and team sports athletes on their journey to a higher performance. And today, David is actually my guest as we dig into race day nutrition. Today's episode is all about designing a race day fueling strategy. Well, Larry, we heard there from Mike Turnison, who, of course, is in the leader's jersey, as he said there, having already taken and worn the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. What we didn't mention was, well, some potentially significant movements on general classification, because this is, well, this is a breaking, this is a developing story, Larry. Um, it's very tense in the podcast studio, both in Traverse City and where I'm in London. And um, we, we, noticed that there were quite a few riders, well, uh, a large proportion of the peloton came in um, well behind Mike Turnison. There were riders who lost 20 seconds, um, riders who lost over a minute, and some of these riders went to the Vuelta España, at least notionally, to challenge for general classification. Um, your teammate, Ben O'Connor, Reggie Tuart, Trent, he was one of the riders who's down as having lost time. Uh, Teo Gegenhart is another the GC rider, I would say, who supposedly lost time, um, Alejandro Valverde. Now, these results have not been confirmed yet. We're hoping to have confirmation at some point. Uh, yeah, also Thibaut Pinot and Rigoberto Aran, uh, Poza Vivo, so quite a few guys. We think a crash may have occurred with, a, well, between three and four kilometers ago, which of course would mean... Well, that would mean some serious jeopardy for the GC riders because they wouldn't then benefit from the the three-kilometer rule. And I think Boy Van Poppel was one of the riders who went down. Of course, Danny Van Poppel, Boy's brother, um, did a fantastic job for Sam Bennett in the lead-out yeah. today. More of that in a minute. The Van Poppel brothers, of course, as I think I may have mentioned yesterday, were born in Utrecht. So they were oh, kind wow. of on home roads today. But um, as I say, more on that, hopefully as we get it. But Larry, as I said earlier on, you were pretty pleased to see Sam Bennett um, back in the winner's enclosure today. Yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, been a long time coming. And, you know, I think he's had a pretty tough year so far. Uh, I remember about this time last year, I ran into him on the road one day, uh, riding around Nice, Monaco area. And uh, I mean, he was creeping. Uh, you know, I think he was going about a mile an when, hour. When and, was this? Uh, this is about one year ago. So, you know, end of August or beginning of September last year. When he was still um, probably coming back from the knee injury, which kept him out of the Tour de France. Yeah, exactly. So he was just starting to train again, essentially, uh, after that huge long injury and just getting ready for like the few races he was going to do at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, I remember him telling me how he had just done these 20 minute efforts and he was totally dead. And I think he was doing the 20 minute efforts at like the same pace I was doing my entire endurance ride at, you know? So, uh, you know, to see him come all this way, now he's back uh, winning a stage here at the Vuelta. I think that's pretty awesome. So, 
that's cool. And then I think, you know, especially like he really wanted to repay his team for all the investment and like hope and, you know, uh, I guess confidence they put in him. And, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, we didn't know if he was going to be starting the race. So to see him come out and win the first uh, sprint stage is pretty awesome. I mean, they have put a lot of faith in him in the sense that they sort of assembled this lead out train for him at the start of the year with Ryan Mullen, who was very good at today. I believe he was very good yesterday as well in the team time trial, but also and Van Poppel, I mentioned yet when it came to selecting the team for the Tour de France, they've, they've doubled down on their GC ambitions and they were successful in that because Vlasov finished fifth in the end. And of course they'd won the Giro d'Italia with Jai Hindley. They'd announced at the start of the year that the team was kind of pivoting slightly to focus more on general classification. It may, it did make me wonder that this sort of experiment or this long-term plan to become more of a GC team has been going so well um, this year that um, Sam Bennett might have started to have some mixed feelings about going back there. Of course, he was going back home, as it were, when he went back to Bora Hansgrohe at the start of the year. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the thing is, is it's it's a bit of a, it's a tough decision for these teams because, yeah, it's great to win stages, but uh, if you can win the GC, that's definitely number one. And, you know, coming with uh, Jai Hindley, uh probably is their number one GC guy, but you also have Kelderman and Higita on the team. So that's like three guys who can probably be top five, I would guess. So, and they'll also probably win some stages between them. So I guess I can see how that's a, it's a tough decision to make, but I'm, I'm really happy to see that they still gave uh, Sam a chance to be here. And uh, yeah, he was able to deliver on that. So, so that's great. You mentioned there, Larry, bumping into Sam in the sort of Monaco area, Nice area last year. Of course, a lot of riders ride around there, or sorry, live around there and and train on those roads. Um, Just watching the stage today and and sort of thinking about the the various riders who haven't raced much over the last few weeks and last few months. And before every Grand Tour, there are always a lot of question marks about how so-and-so is going, whether it's Roglic or Almeida or, or pretty much anyone in the peloton. Um, it made me wonder, as, as a rider going into a Grand Tour, um, you know, how much information do you generally get about how everyone is going? Um, how much of that is on the grapevine? How aware are you of, of what's happening in every team and, and where everyone's forms are? I mean, there is quite a lot around the grapevine. I think, you know, especially if you are going into a Grand Tour, Almost every team now, if they're going for like the general or things like that, uh, you know, they're doing altitude camp. So you have like, say, depends what team, you know, but like anywhere from probably three to the whole team guys uh, at these altitude camps. And uh, there's always a few guys who are like, oh, wow, you know, this guy's flying, you know, he's flying. And uh, so that definitely goes around and then everyone goes, oh, yeah, I heard this guy's flying, you know, but uh, not that it always translates uh uh, how how guys go in uh, in an altitude camp to a race, but uh, but yeah, there's definitely a bit of talk around that, and uh, you know whether it comes to fruition or not. Uh, yeah, guys always are chatting. Another question that was on my mind when I was watching stage today, and also thinking back to the the first days of the Tour de France in Denmark, and well, it turned out to be notable for the for the crowds, which were incredible again today, particularly when you consider that I don't think anyone would deny that La Vuelta España is a lesser race than the Tour de France, but and for it to go to the Netherlands and to attract the crowds that it did is, is quite something. But um, these these 
foreign grand start, which the cycling podcast is shunning um, at this point, <laughs> Hispania, um, they seem to fall into a, a, a quite a repetitive um, and, and almost formulate pattern in the sense that it, it does seem to be, certainly as far as um, well, a lot of the riders in the peloton are concerned, um, it, it, it's it's a waiting game to, to get beyond these these three stages, and it's almost as though from the peloton's point of view, um, there's an there's an element of, of of treating them as a bit of a procession or a formality or something that needs to be just kind of negotiated safely before the yeah. actual race okay. can start. Yeah, I mean, I think like they definitely need to be negotiated safely, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily a procession because it's like. A lot of times these happen to be, I guess, maybe the most dangerous stages, uh, you know, like, for example, like you're probably going to have a lot higher chance of wind and potentially crashes in these first few days uh, in Holland. Okay. Because one, there's like a ton of road furniture mm. in Holland. And then, yeah, also quite a lot of wind saying that I know there've definitely been some crosswind stages as well before, but, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, they definitely want to get through them, but I wouldn't say it's a procession because I think they're oftentimes some of the most stressful days of the race. And yeah, it's I, the same. I suppose yeah, a procession, a procession's, I guess, the wrong word. Um, I, uh, what I suppose I meant was they, they do tend to be quite formulaic. As And to be honest, you know, Vuelta stages and Giro stages over the last couple of years, um, in contrast to what we saw at the Tour de France, they have been formulaic in the sense you do still get the pro Conti team sending guys down the road the, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, they get caught in good time and certainly the flatter days I'm talking about. And the Tour de France was totally different to that this year. I mean, one thing that was unusual today was what Alperson de Koenig did and the way they rode. And I don't think anyone watching at the time was entirely clear about what was going on there because it looked as though that they were on a mission to catch the break um, within or with more than 100 kilometers to go. I mean, I don't know if you had any theories on what was happening there. I mean, at the same time, you know, watching on TV versus being in the race is like two totally different things because like we don't know how hard the breakaway was going, you know, like maybe a few of these guys, they chatted and then they said, okay, let's just like really soft pedal. Let's just tap it. And then like, you know, uh, if they catch us, they catch us, you know, because a lot of times if you go in this early breakaway, essentially, you know, like, okay, uh, it's up to the Peloton to decide when we're caught. So unless it like went really on the legs and then maybe you have like, you know, super strong, like group of guys that is just going to smash themselves. Um, a lot of times it's really up to the Peloton behind. So say the guys in front just decided, okay, we're just going to ride like cruisy endurance Mm. pace. And then like, uh, in the end, if you're behind in the peloton, if you're supposed to be riding the front, it's even hard to like not catch them, I guess, mm. you know, because like maybe they're going that slow. So it's possible they just really weren't uh, going super hard in the front. And then that just made the gap never really grow that big um, because you had some motivated teams behind. Yeah, I heard a, there were a couple of other theories going around. One was that there was it was the anticipation of crosswinds, um, it being the Netherlands. Um, I'm not sure they were ever really forecast today, strong enough crosswinds to split the race. Another one was that Alperson were frustrated right from the off today about the lack of help they were getting from other sprinters' teams. Of course, Alperson 
were riding in the hope, anticipation that Tim Merlier would win today. He's got a great record of winning the first mm-hmm. stage of, of major tours, and he was third in the end. Um, but I guess they'll be pretty disappointed tonight. Certainly disappointed at not having got more help. But most of the sprinters here are with teams with other fish to fry, people like Caden Groves and... Um, and Mads Pedersen even, I mean, that's a team, it's a sort of hybrid team with a lot of breakaway specialists as well. There aren't that many teams that have come here solely or or even mainly to work for a sprinter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think now we'll definitely see Bora riding uh, tomorrow. But, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's really hard to know what actually was going on when you're not in the peloton. Did you, Larry, before your injury happened... How much did you familiarize yourself with this welter route? And uh, did you have any, I mean, yesterday with, with Boz, with Ian Boswell, we spoke about the, you know, the climbing meters. And I said that it was relatively, um, and certainly in the context of recent years, this Vuelta España is quite light on climbing. I mean, 10,000 meters of climbing less than the 2020 Tour de France, for example. Wow. And, yeah. and, the, and the first for a while that's coming under 50,000 meters. I mean, did you have any sense, any impression, or again, is it something that's been said by riders this year that the Vuelta is is a little lighter than usual? Uh, no, I think, you know, for the most part, riders are only concerned if it's like 10 times harder than normal. So, you know, it's like, I think if, if, a, if a Grand Tour has a normal difficulty, it's not really talked about. But if it's just, you know, like insane and crazy and way harder than normal and every stage is stressful, then, then everyone talks about it, you know? But if it's like, you know, not crazy, then it's not really mentioned, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, oh yeah, whatever. It's a well, so there's going to be some mountain tough and it's just going to be hard. But, uh, but yeah, I don't think it's like anything that people talk about because the grand tour is never easy, quote unquote. So <laughs> the tour is the tour. La Vuelta is yeah. La Vuelta. Yeah. And so on and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't really, uh, <clears throat> all I did, you know, looking into the race because yeah, obviously, uh, I was definitely planning on going there. Uh, I just kind of looked at the stages and I just saw, wow, okay, there's a lot of really good opportunities for breakaways uh, because, you know, there's a lot of hilly stages and then there's still quite a few mountaintop finishes. Um, you know, I think I heard there was like eight mountaintop finishes or something like that. Uh, yeah, I and I think wrong, only four. But... I mean, we talked about the sprinters and the lack of full sprinters teams. I think there are only really four good opportunities for sprinters. Yeah, right now I have like the stages pulled up. And, you know, the thing is, is even when there's not a mountaintop finish, it's like in the Vuelta, there's always some hill at the end or, you know, it's like maybe it's like a 4% uphill. You know, it's like uh, so, you know, those days actually are some of the best for the breakaway because like the sprinters are like, oh, we don't know if we can make it. So then they don't ride. And then the GC guys don't care. They don't want to ride. So then in the end, a lot of times they let the break go. So um the one thing i definitely noticed about this route is like we have really a lot of good days for the breakaway el ritmo de la vuelta the rhythm of the vuelta this is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, the rhythm of the Vuelta a España. As discussed yesterday, this is going to be a regular feature every day. Every day we're revisiting a an edition of La Vuelta a España and the official song from that year. Today we're going back, Larry, to 1984. The official song was Panico en el Eden.
which is Panicked in Eden, um, <laughs> roughly translated. You've just listened to it, Larry. And what did you think? Oh, it was great. Yeah, loved it. It was sung by the Asturian glam rocker Tino Casal. Um, many in Spain called him El Rey del Glam, the king of glam rock. Um, this was another example of a song that really took off due to the airplay it got on the Vuelta by virtue of the Vuelta, thanks to the Vuelta. Um, so much so that it became the biggest selling single in Spain in 1984. Uh, Tino Casal would also be the author of the 1990 official Vuelta song. That one was called Oro Negro, Black Gold. Um, tragically, he died a year after that, roughly a year after that, in a traffic accident when his drummer, who was driving the car, lost control. Um, of the vehicle near Madrid, it hit a lamppost and Casal, who wasn't wearing a seatbelt, uh, well, he died of the resulting injuries. And we said the song was called um, Panico, El Panico, or Panico en el Eden. Um, there would certainly be a heart-stopping ending to that Vuelta España in 1984. It went down as the closest Grand Tour in history. It was finally won by the Frenchman Eric Caritou by a margin of six seconds over Alberto Fernandez. Uh, Caritou had not even been supposed to ride the Vuelta. It was only called up when his skill team leader, Sean Kelly, called out at the last minute. Um, I mentioned Casal's death years after, or just a year after, sorry, a, no, years after, because it was after the 1990 song when he um, sadly died. Um, I mentioned that, well, there was a tragic similar postscript um, for the man Caritou beat as well, Alberto Fernandez. He also died in a car crash with his wife alongside him on the 14th of December that same year, 1984. He'd been considered one of the stars of Spanish cycling in the 1980s, and is still remembered fondly by his unusual nickname, El Galleta, The Biscuit. Um, Fernandez, having grown up in Aguilar de Campo, um, the biscuit manufacturing mecca of Castilla y León. Um, Caritou, meanwhile, did, um, w- didn't win a whole lot else in his career. And, um, well, he retired to a quiet life looking after the family winery uh, in the shadow of Mont Ventoux, where I actually visited him last year. Um, so that was 1984, Glam Rock. Larry Warbass, what, where, what's your position on Glam Rock? I didn't even know that was a genre until right now. So, uh, <laughs> what is what is your musical genre of choice, or what are your uh, musical genres? I don't of know. Course? I mean, I have quite a diverse uh, musical taste, but I have to say, if I was going to choose one, it'd probably be like uh, folk, oh, really? Americana kind of How stuff. So a little bit chiller. Right. Oh, is that well, disappointing? For, for a guy okay. for a guy from Chicago, are you actually were you born in Chicago? I was born in Detroit. Oh, I was born okay. In Detroit. Well. De- Detroit, yeah. you should be, it should be Motown, really, shouldn't it? But I thought, yeah, you were, yeah. why did I think that you were from Chicago? In which case, I was going to break uh, you for I not- live like five hours north of Chicago. Oh, okay. but, uh, a lot of good but, rap yeah. music has come out of Chicago. So um, Also Detroit. Yes, that is Eminem's true. from Detroit. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Um, Larry. I do like rap, though. Rap's good, too. I mean, like, I'm, I'm a big fan of rap, but I was going to say if I chose one. You know? Oh, really? What are musical tastes like in the team generally? Um, any sort of jo- horrible yes. French music, horrible. Any good French? Fr- I'll be honest. French French music has grown on me since I've been in this team. Uh, it's a lot better than Italian music, I find. But, uh, but yeah. Mm. Um, who's the Who's the <laughs> resident DJ at AG2R Citroen? Uh, it depends on the race. So if Jungles is there, Bob will be the DJ. Um, then. We have uh, Joffrey Bouchard. He also is definitely big into playing his music. 
Um, and then actually I have to say, uh, in Catalonia, it was Dorian Godon and he was actually really good. Mm. Unsurpri- or, I mean, surprisingly, uh, but, but yeah, we, we, it was a pleasant surprise. Well, Larry, we mentioned earlier in the episode that one of your teammates, Ben O'Connor seems not to have had a great day or didn't have the perfect ending to his day. Um, I heard earlier, um, from the team director for Cyril Dessel, who was under the impression, I think, that everything had gone fine for the team today. Ben O'Connor, it looks as though he has lost some time as a result of this crash. Yeah. Um, we now believe that it was Gerben um, Tyson of Intermarché, who, well, he was certainly involved in the crash. And Ben, as a result we believe has lost 26 seconds on general classification. Now, obviously, um, Ben O'Connor w- went to the Tour de France hoping to repeat his fantastic fourth place from of 2021 and didn't go as well as he or the team had hoped him. He got injured and eventually pulled out of the race. He pulled out of the race around about, it was in the Alps, just after the Alps. Um yeah, I, I think he went through, I don't know which rest day, and then they're like, you know, just give it a go and see, and it just didn't go. So, And he sort of, well, reset um, and refocused on La Vuelta a España. I mean, Larry, what do you know about the team's goals, uh, La Vuelta generally, and Ben's goals, and how Ben's going? Yeah, so definitely uh, the team is going all in for Ben at this Vuelta. Um you know, I think uh, it was pretty disappointment, a pretty big disappointment that he uh, had to stop the Tour de France. And um, yeah, they were really hoping that he could deliver, you know, and I guess uh, live up to the performance he had in the Tour de France last year with fourth overall. And, and then after his amazing Dauphiné, we were pretty confident, I guess, uh, in what he was going to be able to do because he was the only guy who could even come close to uh, uh, Roglic and Vigagol. So um yeah, it was pretty disappointing to see, you know, he got sick and then he crashed and, you know, it was just kind of like all the things happened that could happen. And so he had to stop. And, you know, the goal was always to do the Vuelta after the tour. Mm-hmm. That was always the plan. But originally it would have been for stages. And once uh, the tour hopes, uh, I guess, ended, um, he switched his focus to the Vuelta. So he took a little break, reset. And then, yeah, I started training again in Andorra, went back up to altitude uh, by himself. And uh, I know uh, our coach uh, went up with him for maybe a week. You have the same coach, don't you, Ben? Yeah, we have the same coach. So his name's Stephen Barrett. He's an Irish guy, um, lives actually just next to me in Villefranche, next to Nice. And uh, yeah, he's one of the team coaches, coaches most of the foreigners on the team. And uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I know Ben is super motivated to do uh, a really good GC result here. And it's a shame that he lost, I think, 26 seconds today. But, um, you know, I think uh, over the grand course of the Vuelta, hopefully that won't uh, hurt him too much. He's, he impressed me this year when I spoke to him, or every time I spoke to him, Paranese, Dauphiné, and also at the start of the tour, with just how so sanguine he seemed to be about the challenge of having to or being expected to you know, live up to the precedent of last year and repeat that performance. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, he sort of, when the team signed Ben O'Connor, it was um, as his previous team, NTT, was sort of falling apart. They they kind of picked him up at the last minute. I think he would have, he's a guy who definitely would have had other, other offers and, you know, his, his career was not in jeopardy. But I don't think he was really signed as a, 
as a star. I don't think the team had the expectation that he was going to finish fourth in the Tour de France. He found himself with that status in that position. And that's quite onerous um, for for anyone, I think. Um, it's very onerous to, to, to have to repeat that or to be called upon to repeat that. But he seemed quite relaxed about that challenge, um, certainly when I spoke to him earlier this year and, and was having a great season up to the end of the Dauphiné. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the thing is, uh, I guess if we go back to the start, is like when he went pro, I don't know if it was his first year pro or his second year pro, he was sitting top 10 mm, in Giro yeah, uh, up until like one of the last mountain days, crashed out, broke his collarbone yeah. or something like that. And I think just before that, he won a stage in Tour of the Alps um, alone. So, you know, I think the thing is, it started there and he thought like, okay, I have this, uh, you know, like I'm going to be a GC rider in Grand Tours. And then, I don't know, just... Over the course of one or two years, it didn't really like come to fruition. It didn't work out. And so I think the thing is, he still obviously had that in his mind, like that this is possible. But uh, it, yeah, it just never really happened. And then, he definitely uh, lost a lot of confidence, Larry. I mean, I remember speaking to him a couple of years ago at the Giro when he was really, his confidence was on the floor. I mean, he, he'd almost shelved his GC ambitions and he was just simply trying yeah. to get into a break. And I remember speaking to him one morning and he said, I just do not know how to do it. I've just lost all confidence in my ability to to even do that, to even be in a break for 20 kilometers at the start of a mountain stage. Yeah, I think it's hard because, uh, you know, I would say cycling is a large percentage mental. And as soon as you lose the confidence or lose your head a bit, it's, it's really hard to, yeah, I guess, stay in the game. Uh, so whether that's going in the breakaway, trying to win a stage, or going for the general, it's all a bit the same. You know, you really need a strong head and a lot of belief in yourself. So it's hard, especially because like if you lose the confidence of your team or your teammates, uh, you know, that's that's a lot of it, too. So I know when he signed with AG2R, I don't think he had any other options, actually, at the time. Um, and, yeah, the team took sort of like a risk on him um, and they signed him at the beginning of the 2020 Giro. And then uh, that ended up being pretty impressive and a good signing because he went on to win, I think, was it two stages or he won a stage and was like, second or he was amazing at the end of that Giro the last week so um, I don't know if that was just sort of like this release and freedom once he signed the contract but uh, that was pretty cool so he ended up coming to our team and then um, he started the season strong and then just got stronger and stronger and then had that amazing Tour de France so yeah you know they definitely didn't sign him as a leader but then they obviously were really happy that he ended up turning into one uh, because yeah we had you know, I think um, some of the leaders we had signed, they had some injuries and everything. And so uh, he really slotted in um, into an awesome place that uh, the team really needed. So that was cool. And I think, you know, he always, I'm sure, still held that desire and hope in his head that he was going to be a GC guy from, you know, when he was like a Neopro. And, and luckily, he was able to sort of rekindle that uh and uh yeah deliver so um that was pretty big and then you saw this year i guess you know that confidence that he uh he took from the tour de france last year and you know he just came out and delivered in you know in catalonia he won uh the queen mm -hmm. stage i mean pretty handily uh and then yeah he didn't end up winning the race overall but uh i think in pretty much every race you know he really showed that he was there and he was in the fight and uh so that was pretty cool so um you know, I have no doubt that he'll be able to uh, reproduce uh, a good GC result um, and hopefully it'll be here at this Vuelta. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that classic, it's that sort of second album syndrome, isn't it? And it, it faces any rider. Um, it, it can become a problem for any rider who's achieved an incredible result. And then, as I said, they're called upon to repeat it. There's another rider at this Vuelta España who's been sort of stalked by that for the last couple of years. And that's Teo Gegenhart, who won the Giro d'Italia in 2020. Larry, I, I'm curious to see what he does at this Giro d'Italia. He's in a team which has lots of options on general classification. Carapaz is the leader of Ineos. I would say he's the leader. And they've given that impression without being very, very explicit about him being the sole leader. But they've also got Carlos Rodriguez. They've got um, other promising young rider, Luke Plath Sivakov. as well. And they've got Sivakov. So we don't know exactly what status uh Teo has in this Giro and we as we said earlier on he did also lose a bit of time today 43 seconds and the results still haven't been corrected so we think um, that will stand but Larry uh, Teo is the subject of another regular feature that I introduced yesterday El Encuentro del Día because I spoke to Teo a couple of days ago before the Vuelta, in particular about the disappointment of missing out on the Giro d'Italia this year through illness and what's happened since then. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Uh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't really any rearranging because the plan always finished at the Giro anyway. Um, so... Uh, then it was more just about resetting goals um, Adam and I and some other staff and stuff got pretty sick after Pivasco was like the third virus for me in the space of less than two months so it was, it was not ideal um, we were both on antibiotics for well anyway I was on antibiotics for six yeah for a week um, so then it was just not realistic to to go into the Giro in good shape really especially after uh, a spring of basically being off the bike three times for, for a week um, but I think that's a pretty familiar story that uh, a lot of people in uh, the peloton and, and in wider society have, have gone through in, in the last 12 months so yeah it was just a case of resetting um, I was really hoping to go to Norway and, and Dauphiné in really good shape and then unfortunately I got uh, another stomach virus um, in the week before Norway so that was tough again but uh, yeah unfortunately that's just how uh, I guess you could say the world is at the moment really um, so then I just made the best of, of what I could really in that moment of being excited to race and, and trying to do my best for, for the team and for myself and uh, yeah then carried that on in, in Burgos which was a nice race for the team um, I was definitely a little bit underdone but hopefully um, that's not a bad thing with still a lot of racing to come in this next uh, few months yeah of course it was disappointing for our team with, with Richard but um I really liked Jai and I think it was a really deserved win by him. Um, he rode a, yeah, a brilliant race from, from what I saw on, on the TV. Um, I think that in 2020 when I raced against him, I grew through the race and yeah, you can see that also with 
the you know metrics and and whatever that I improved through the the three weeks um and I've not really had a chance to to do that since the tour last year it was pretty complicated with the repercussions of of the crashes in uh in the first couple of days what yeah a lot of the bunch experienced um and I struggled with my with my back through most of the race so yeah it's been uh, a while since I kind of had a grand tour where I was well it's been since then hasn't um so yeah I don't know we'll see Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our longest term supporters, of course. Science in Sport offers all of our listeners 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. The discount code is still valid. It's still working. If you are having any difficulty with it, it's almost certainly because you're trying to apply it to a shopping basket which already has some discounted items in it. The SISCP25 code doesn't work in conjunction with any other discount codes that Science in Sport might be running. But you can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com and they of course have everything you need to fuel your ride before, during and afterwards. Whether it's energy gels or the beta fuel or the delicious tiramisu cake bars. I'll be stocking up on all of that before the second half of our trip around Scotland, the Tour de Cos, which we will be doing in a few weeks time. Listen out for that in Explore a bit later on this year. But that discount code again. SISCP25. So, Larry, before our short commercial interlude there, we heard from Teo Gagan Hart. Is Teo someone you know well? Yeah, I know him pretty well uh, just from being in the Peloton uh, for so many years together. Uh, he also was on Action or Maybe it was called Hagen's Berman or something at the time. Uh, so I got to know him there uh, one year in Tour Utah. Uh, I was on IM, I think it was 2016. And yeah, we, we started chatting there. And yeah, then once he turned pro, we've sort of been buddies in the Peloton ever since. With Teo, and he sort of alluded to it there, and there is kind of this, I suppose, pink elephant in the room, or there has been for the last couple of years, of the, the sort of spectre. And again, it's a similar conversation, a similar point to the one we made about Ben O'Connor. Um, the pressure of having to, or of people expecting him to win another Grand Tour, contend for um, Grand Tours again. And also this question mark over the quality, which I think have, have been unfair, really. Um, but these question marks over the quality of that 2020 win because it was an unusual season. Um, mm. And there we heard him talking about Jai Hindley winning this year's uh, Giro d'Italia, which in a way, if it was needed, which again, I don't necessarily think it was, but almost legitimised his 2020 Giro win. I mean, what do you think the feeling in the peloton is about well, Teo's ability, his potential, and also that 2020 Giro and that season. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, is probably hard for him to deal with, uh, whether, you know, he would state it or not, is just like, you know, I think a lot of the people in the Peloton and maybe in the greater media, it's like everyone said like 2020 was just like totally different year. You saw different people going fast, other people who normally go fast go slow. 
And, um, you know, I think a lot of people are like, I remember uh, one of the guys who he motor paced me and uh, he used to motor pace like most of the pros around uh, Monaco Nice area. Um, I remember him saying like this year, you'll see guys pull these results out that like you would have never expected. And then you'll see other guys. Yeah, I just he said this year will be totally different than any other year you'll ever see. And funny, cause it's not like he was, uh, exactly a sports scientist, but he was definitely right. Um, you know, we saw definitely a, a crazy different season that year. Um, and so I think that, uh, in Teo's head is probably something that might be difficult for him to process, but at the same time, um, you know, the speeds that year were probably some of the highest ever. I think like when they talk about like, uh, you know, I guess like the Watts per kilo and the top climbing times and every, you know, they were one of the, it was maybe one of the fastest seasons ever. So, um, you know, that Giro, like the climbing performances were insane. I, I was there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I watched from a little bit afar. <laughs> uh, I think I was 17th in the Giro. So I was still like up there, you know, starting the final climbs and stuff, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a really hard race. And, you know, I know, I remember him saying that, uh, Tim Carrison, the sports scientist coach on, uh, in AOS, uh, said that I think he had one of the top three performances of the team, uh, of all time. I think it was on like the stage 15 to Piancavallo or something like that. Um, and so clearly he has the ability and mm-hmm. he has the legs and uh, it wasn't a fluke, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, without getting, without getting kind of woo woo about it, obviously yeah. that the training was, was a factor that year and you know, what people did and when they did it. But I mean, people talk about biorhythms and, and thriving at certain types of year i don't know because maybe because of the lunar cycle larry i mean is that possible so you know what's so funny about this is actually i was just talking about this to uh joe dombrowski the other day we were riding and uh i don't remember what he was saying was that like oh i'm you know good yeah i haven't been good in this race before and i was like you know what i was like i was just thinking about this because for me I don't know. A lot of times I've just gone really well at the end of the season. Um, and a lot of times we've gone well at the beginning of the season. And then, you know, usually there's like some part in there that I don't go that well at. And, uh, like I was good in the Giro when it was in October, but I haven't been good in the Giro when it was in May. And then I was like, well, you know, I was like, yeah, I was thinking about this one day. Like, you know, is it possible that like some of us are just good at certain times of year? And then at the same time, I was like, well, you know, there are guys who are good the whole year round, you know, like, there are guys who've won every grand tour. So I was like, I think it just so happens that, I don't know, we kind of get this in our head. Like maybe we're not that good. Oh, uh, you know, like, I'm not good in May, you know? And then every time May comes around, ah, oh, yeah, you know, the last time it was May, I wasn't that good. So, you know, I probably won't be good this May either. And I think it's just kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. So actually, to be honest, uh, while I used to think maybe that was a possibility, now I don't really believe it. Um, so, yeah. So that's, that's that settled then. Yeah, I mean, there's no science <laughs> behind this uh, <laughs> reasoning, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've got friends who used to think that they had more success with members of the opposite sex in certain months of the year. So I don't know. Interesting. Might, yeah, but maybe, maybe they had big muscles or something. Their shirt came off in the summer, <laughs> you know, and then like uh, people were admiring those muscles and things just went like that, you know? I'm not. I, I'm not referring to Lionel Bernie just for the yeah, avoidance yeah, okay. for the avoidance for the avoidance of any doubt. Yeah. 
You know, I, I really do believe that Teo can reproduce what he did at that Giro. And uh, I think if there's anything stopping him, it's probably just uh, his own mind, like uh, questioning uh, his prior performance. But I think like if he did it once, he can definitely do it again. And uh, so I really hope he can get a chance, whether it's this Vuelta or another time uh, to really show that he can do it. And, you know, I think, uh, yeah, watching Jai do that this year was probably really good for his confidence. So he can really know, yeah, okay, this wasn't a fluke and uh, I can do this again too. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. So, Larry, uh, we will start with La Cena de Ayer, yesterday's dinner. Still not in Spain, so no authentic Spanish food. And in fact, I'm going to gloss over the food last night because it was unremarkable. It was so late when I finished recording because of the um, ungodly hour at which the time trial took place. But I did have a nice glass of uh, Mencia, um, Spanish red wine, from up there in the northwest. Um, that was certainly the highlight of my dinner yesterday. Larry, what have we got on the menu tomorrow? So tomorrow's stage three uh, from Breda to Breda. At least I looked up the cities this time. Uh, it's the last stage in the Netherlands. Um, whether they pass into Holland, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, definitely not. I would say definitely not tomorrow. Okay, okay. 193.2K uh, with only 394 meters of climbing. Um, yeah, so I think what we can expect is another sprint. Um, but I was checking out the wind. Um, it looks like you know, the last part of the stage, uh, there's definitely a risk for some cross tailwinds. There's going to be around 20k an hour wind. So there's a chance. I looked, the roads are pretty open. Um, but again, they passed through a few cities a few times. So, uh, you know, some changing in directions. But I definitely think there's a chance, um, which would make it exciting for all of us at home. Uh, also, yeah. also exciting, Larry. We've got Stop Press. Um, Teo Gegenhardt has just messaged me to say that he crashed with 500 meters to go. It was the MP uh. crash that he was caught behind. And in fact, the official results have also just come out. And the time gaps that we referred to earlier in the episode, um, Ben O'Connor, Teo, etc., etc., and they've now been erased. So Woo-hoo. they have benefited from the final 3K rule. Great, great. It's good to see that our, uh, our friends are still in the game. Yeah. Teo is also he's also kindly refrained from messaging me the Arsenal score um, and not ruining that's good, the, that's good. The, the game for me um, uh, Larry yeah. Breda to Breda tomorrow I've been to Breda once too do you remember your own Blylevens um, sprinter 1990s sprinter he was, was from that neck of the woods I once visited okay. him at home when he was he was preparing to take on the world land speed record on a bike and it was held by another Dutch gentleman called Fred Rompelberg. Fred Rompelberg, who'd built his whole life, constructed his whole identity around the land speed record on um, on a bike. And he's he did hold the record. I haven't checked to see whether he still holds it. Um, he'd done it on the Utah Salt Flats, I believe. Um, is there a place there called Bonville? Where the record, no where idea. records generally, a lot of land speed records um, are, um, have been registered. Anyway, Fred Rumpelberg was so proud of this that he'd actually changed his name officially to Fred Rumpelberg, 260 kilometers an hour. No um, way. Oh, wow. <laughs> I believe so. And um, Jeroen was going to take 
on the record but and i went to interview him about this at home in Breda. but i think he had to abort the project i can't remember why maybe more on that tomorrow maybe maybe we'll seek out your own blighter than tomorrow i think i have his phone number somewhere um Breda, also notable larry because i discovered today there used to be there is no longer unfortunately in Breda. there used to be a redhead day uh, a good high dog in, in Dutch. Um, redheads from all over the world used to converge on Breda around about this time of year in September, I think, for a day of redhead-related celebrations. Well, um, hopefully Boswell will be doing the podcast well, with you, you know tomorrow what? then. Well, I was thinking, I was thinking about redheads in the peloton. Um, of course, a redhead has won La Vuelta Espanol before Jan Ulrich won La Vuelta Espanol in 1999. And probably maybe the best i mean with caveats with the necessary caveats maybe the greatest red-headed cyclist of all time Rick. but there are a lot in the peloton get a guess larry try to guess how many redheads are in this welter peloton oh in the welter well, yeah i did a i did uh a... well if there's a lot i don't know what 12 or something one two three four five six seven Eleven, I counted. Oh, damn, that was um, a pretty good guess. We've mentioned one already. Teo Gegenhardt, yeah, Sam Oman, yeah. Mike Turnison. I was it, a lot of these what? are kind of. He is so not redheaded. I, I if you shine, he's a, like you, totally blonde. Yeah. No, I would say Larry. If you shine the right shade of UV light on him, I would say it's redheaded. There are a few borderline strawberry <laughs> yeah, blondes. Red light, yeah. Okay, Mike Turnison. I'm, I'm having. I'm having him. No right, way. That is a zero. <laughs> no way. He's redheaded. Ryan Mullen. Quentin yeah. Pachet, he's definitely ginger. Oh, yeah, he's, he's definitely got a ginger beard. Yeah, 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 and yeah, Julius yeah. Vandenberg, uh, oh, yeah, Alessandro yeah. De Marchi, an Italian Very, redhead. Yeah. Jan Bacalens, I would say border, borderline. No, no borderline. way. <laughs> Where did you get that from? <laughs> Dan, Dan Hula. Um, I don't even know who that is. Roger uh, Adria of Kern yeah, Pharma. Yeah. Um, and Wojtek uh, Rapper, who is also riding for the Czech rider, who's also... A, Kern Farm, I believe. Couple of overripe strawberry blondes. Um, Caden Groves, mm, possibly. Mm, I, honestly, I haven't seen him many times without his helmet on. So Yasha Sutilin, mm, more of a blondie. <laughs> wow, you're, uh, Jake Stewart as you're well. You're really more, stretching here, more, man. More mouthy. I'd say we got nine. Anyway, nine redheads. The the good news, the good news, Larry, is that um, Redhead Day still takes place, and it's only moved okay. a few kilometers up the road to Tilburg. Um, and actually, cool. I think it should be taking place. Well, it's taking place next week because in 2022, the event will celebrate its 15th anniversary. The organization is planning to create a record-breaking festival with a high number of activities ranging from pub crawls to lectures, photo shoots, and workshops. Um, Larry, it's not too late to invest in, a, I don't know, in some, but... yeah, some just for men. I don't know how you dye your hair uh, red. but uh, I'm, I'm content with my... <laughs> that is quite a lot of redheads though isn't it yeah that's um, a lot yeah. 11 11 um so larry in short we don't expect too much movement on general classification um tomorrow do we no no i mean if we see crosswinds then you never know uh i mean that'd be pretty exciting but in the end i, I looked uh so if it doesn't split uh it's going to be a pretty straightforward finish the last uh like few k there's really not many turns um, and then the last finishing straight is 1K long on a decent-sized road. So um, I, I, I kind of predict another win by Sam Bennett. I think he's going to be going uh, going well with a lot of confidence and motivation after the stage today, and I think he'll win another one. Ever noticed a slight reddish tinge to his hair? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean he's Irish, so. Yeah, um, Larry, just very, very briefly. Um, yesterday, obviously, we saw Jumbo Visma win the team time trial convincingly. Can we infer anything at all about the form of Primoz Roglic from that? I think there were there were a few sort of Jumbo Visma riders overheard, sort of whispering in Primoz Roglic's ear yesterday after the finish. Um, was the effect of you know how strong he was. Um, but should, should we assume that he's in really good form? Yeah. I mean, I really don't think he would have come to this uh, Vuelta if he wasn't in good form. So, um, you know, he has uh, nothing to gain by coming here and, you know, going for 12. So um, I think if he's here, that means he's in the form to go for the win. And, you know, I think pretty much most races we've seen Roglic go to, uh, he's in really good shape. So uh, I think he just has a really high high base level and uh, I imagine he'll be fighting for the win. So, Well, Larry, you have been in excellent form this evening for your cycling podcast so. debut as a fully fledged guest of the podcast. And we'll be hearing from you on a number of occasions throughout the rest of the world. So certainly you'll be back next week. So thank you, Larry. Enjoy the rest of the day in thank you. Traverse, Traverse City. City. Tomorrow yeah. I'll be joined by Dan Martin, aka for the purposes of the Vuelta, Dan Martin, Danny Martin. Um, so until then, or hasta luego. Ciao, ciao. Happy to be here and uh, yeah, looking forward to being back in a few days. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.